Hey, so if you're listening to this, or you're not listening yet, but if you're listening to me talking, you're about to hear a lecture from Psychology, also Biology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term of 2023. How in the hell is it 2023? That means I'm 58 years old, and I imagine that makes me old. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this, but, uh, you know, if you're one of my students, great. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this, and I do this for you. If you're somebody else listening, I really don't care what you think, but uh, actually, it's pretty great because I'm really good at this. Enjoy. Well, it's my way, Lord, way. It's what she said to me, it's why I'm gone. Since it out right, I'm on the right here on the left, this is a picture, this is uh, Neural Responses to Magnetic Orientation, Information and Songbirds by Madeline Isabel Robin Broadbeck, PhD now. Uh, there she is getting her clock, it's very rigid and distorted, it's creeping me out, so I'm going to look at this one. Uh, there she is there, giving her talk. Uh, it was cool, it was exciting, and there are now two doctors, Broadbeck and my family. Yep. So now there's two, there's six four people in the family, and we have six degrees in psychology. So on average, all, we all have one and a half. Is that right? Am I doing that right? I think so. Uh, right. Anyway, that's where it was. And thank you for... Uh, got some nice notes from a few people, and that was cool. Uh, right. So we, we ended up by talking about depressants, right? Antidepressants. And the last thing I talked about was how we don't know how lithium works. There's a lot of ideas. That's, so let's talk about opiates because we live in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the funny, funny joke. Hmm. If you take neuropharmacology next term, we'll watch. One of the things I'll have you do is watch a documentary literally about the opiate crisis in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. It's the weirdest part of it. When I was watching it, first time I had, I think, watched it about three, four years ago, somebody said, Well, that's weird because that's the house that I grew up in before we sold it to those people. And then it's like it's, it's close to home, you yeah. uh, So, opiates, we're talking here about anything that's morphine like. Okay? So, there are three or four types, and I say or, you'll see in a second, because there's, there's, a, there's one that isn't just an opiate receptor. Uh, there's the mu receptor. The mu receptor, of course, is just average. <laughs> That's the statistical joke. It's not funny, uh, but it's a statistical joke. Anyway, the mu uh, receptor, this is throughout the limbic system. It's in the hippocampus and the amygdala. It's in the thalamus, locus, locus coriolis, which is important in uh, putting vision together with other senses, I guess is a way to put it. Uh, most of what we might call the interesting effects here, in other words, the high, is coming here. A lot of the weird feelings you get, uh, weird perceptual things that happen when you take opiates. Now there's the delta receptor. 
The delta receptor is in the limbic system as well, but it doesn't overlap with mu, so it's not in the same places as mu, it's just it's in the limbic system. It also has uh, receptors in the cortex, hypothalamus. Look at these cumbens, really, what a surprise. Yeah. It literally directly makes you feel good. Um, the medulla, that's sleep and wakefulness. And a lot of antipsychotic drugs also work on delta receptors. The interesting point here is we can, um, we can take a look at this and we can imagine a few of the effects of opiates and see why they're there by looking at where these receptors are. So if we go, well, cortex is certainly higher order cognition doesn't work as well. Have you ever talked to anybody who's full of opiates? I don't mean they necessarily have to be somebody you saw in that part of town. I mean, like, have you ever taken a bunch of morphine because you had a had surgery? If you did, you're not entirely coherent, especially if you're not somebody who does a lot of drugs, so you have use the drug effects, so you get like a lot of, you know, you just ramble with it. Hypothalamus, oh, oh, um, you get, uh, you shiver. In fact, when you, one, of the, one of the things that happens from opiates when you uh, have a draw is you get hot flashes and cold flashes and you get goosebumps. By the way, those, those hot flashes are described as like being lit on fire. They don't just get a little warm. Like the people just talk, they're, they're, it's incredibly, incredibly unpleasant. Um, that's actually where the term cold turkey comes from because your skin looks like a, a turkey. So that's where kicking something like kicking. Oh, kicking a habit, by the way, also comes from involuntary leg movements when you're all getting off heroin. That's where kick, the term kicking a habit comes from. Seriously. Uh, let's see. Oh, gee, what a surprise. People just come well, people, there's got to be a reason for you to stick a needle in your arm. The reason is it feels freaking amazing. Like, it right away feels great because your accumbens is. That's one thing. And on the other side of it, oh, now I don't feel like my skin's on fire. Oh, well, I think you can see why people would take these drugs. Uh, medulla, sleep and wakefulness, not surprising. Okay, so there's a lot of, we can take a look sometimes at the uh, receptors uh, where they're located and say, it's not surprising that these effects exist for, say, opiates. Mm. The kappa receptor, that should say accumbens, not accumens. I'm going to fix that right now because it's going to bother me. So I'm going to fix that right now. There we go. So the accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, wait a second, those first two are two parts of the three-part reward system in your brain. Again, you take these drugs because they feel good. Hypothalamus and thalamus again. So basically what these drugs do is they um, make you feel good, like most drugs that we do. Then there's the sigma receptor. This can lead to psychotic-like symptoms, um, and it's not just for opiates. Okay. So, uh, in general, the paraaqueductal gray area, should be hard to say, but it is, uh, is full of opiate receptors. And when you're in pain, these are stimulated. So it's not surprising that where pain is processed also has opiate receptors because it's, it, 
their function, they're endogenous painkillers, right? Like endorphins that we make ourselves are, are to kill pain. And when we give people morphine, we're just killing pain using a chemical that's remarkably similar to uh, endorphins that animals make. And the amygdala, uh, it's gonna affect emotion. Uh, it affect the respiratory cough and vomit centers, and of course the reward system. Um, so the respiratory, one of the problems with, the, with these drugs is they'll slow you down to the point where you stop breathing. When you stop breathing, I don't know if you know, like this oxygen is really important for people. You'll die. So, also, um, any people here, by the way, have seen the movie Train Spotting? Yeah, a couple of you? More people should see that. It's a great movie. It's not a fun watch. Yeah, it is. It's not fun. It's about uh, four Scottish guys who are also heroin addicts. Uh, Ewan McGregor's in it. He's amazing. You think he's way better. That's better than what he did Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is really, he's really good. He's tremendous in it. Everybody's amazing. It's a great movie. Uh, and one of the, it probably has the best, this is what people who have taken these drugs say, it has the best cinematic implementation, representation of, going, of withdrawal from heroin that you'll ever see. It's uh, unpleasant, but it's also kind of weirdly funny. And the movie's weirdly funny. There's one scene that's incredibly unpleasant. That's all I'm going to say. Like, it's not good. But the rest of it's watchable, I'd say. That was, then again, I watched it a long time ago. Maybe, maybe harder to watch it. Uh, yeah, you can get Cody, for example, cough medicine. Hmm. You get that by prescription. You don't buy that over the counter. But one night a long time ago, maybe 1999, considering where we were living, in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, my wife woke up in the middle of the night with a very bad cough. When I say very bad, she coughed and couldn't stop coughing. And I mean for half an hour. <laughs> I said, you know, you should probably just go to the hospital at 3 o'clock in the morning. You'll get in quick. Just go. So she left. Um, she came back literally an hour and a half later, and she wasn't coughing. She said, I got this medicine. This is great. And it said on the side to take, you know, one teaspoon every four hours, which was fine. And it totally got rid of her cough. And I looked at it, oh, it's Cody. Yeah, sure, that's not So one day I had a bad cough, and I'm an idiot. I think you see where this is going. I'm going to take my wife's codeine-laced cough medicine, which is exactly what I don't do this. So I went and I took some cough medicine. I just read it. So I took four tablespoons, not one <laughs> teaspoon. Um, I saw it four, it's like four every four hours, and I was kind of half awake, and I'd been coughing so much. So now I'm still here, so it didn't do apparently any permanent damage, but I shouldn't have done that. I'll tell you this: I had a hell of an interesting evening. I just lied in bed, going, "It's weird how the ceiling is kind of warping." I don't think it's supposed to. That's got to be a drug effect. Boy, does it look real, though. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, don't do that. Don't take other people's medicine and learn how to read. <laughs> Those are two very important skills. So anyway, it works tremendously. The problem is, of course, it could be dangerous. I mean, I'm lucky that had I yeah, I didn't hurt myself, probably I didn't hurt myself. I'm not hurt myself pretty badly. Uh, I didn't hurt myself. I just had a somewhat unpleasant but fascinating evening. <laughs> That's what I had.
And then we threw the, the medicine out. It was like, why did you take my expired cough medicine? Of course, because I'm an idiot. What do you do whenever your partner accuses you of something? You always go right back with something worse. Why did you leave expired cough medicine in the, in the thing? Huh? Because huh? <laughs> you're an idiot, again. Anyway, it was completely on me. Don't do that, is what I'm saying. Of course, the reward system, and as I mentioned here, there has to be a reason to stick a needle in your arm. Uh, about the most recent data I've seen, it's only 20th, 21st century. Uh, most recent data I've seen suggests somewhere between 25 and 30% of intravenous drug users are also HIV positive because they share needles. This is why we have safe injection sites and give people needles. Like, why are you doing junkies needles? So they don't die. Oh, I'm sorry. Compassion's bad. It's called harm reduction. People are going to do it anyway, so why not have them do it safely? All right. So let's talk about stimulants. And Coca-Cola, like all pot, basically started out as a medicine. Uh, like, it, it didn't do anything, <laughs> but it was medicine that had alcohol in it and uh, cocaine. So you felt great after having one. So it felt like you were actually being cured of something. You weren't, you were just a little, a little drunk and a little full of cocaine. Great, little poor man's speedball. So that's where it comes from. It eventually becomes pop, and that's a different thing, right? It hasn't had cocaine in it forever. There hasn't been cocaine in it forever. So, you know, the, the, the caffeine-free stuff is full of cocaine. You hear so many stupid things people say. Good chance when somebody says something stupid, it's not true. It's sort of like a rumor. I mean, that's just... Anyway, there's no cocaine in Coca-Cola. But there was. And in fact, uh, I love this product. These are cocaine tooth drops for your child, obviously. Now, I'll also say that if you have bad tooth pain, your dentist may very well prescribe a topical cocaine solution that's put on your tooth. Because it works. Anything that ends in ain is a local anesthetic. That's why it's got that name. It's not that the name magically makes things anesthetics. It's that there's a name, there are naming conventions, okay? Uh, so, cocaine is still useful, medically, and a buddy of mine, geez, about five years ago, had a really bad toothache, and then he got this, he had a, well, not toothache, he had wisdom teeth removed, and then he was given these drops to literally put in the hole. Whoa! I have all my wisdom teeth, and they keep going, you know, we can take those out, and I'm like, no, good way. I'm keeping, man. Got 58 years with these. Well, not really. I didn't, wasn't born with them. 50, 50 odd years. I don't know what it is. Maybe 40. Anyway, I got your wisdom teeth. Uh, but he had wisdom. They think he was getting cocaine. Um, and of course, then the mayor of Toronto later smoked crack. Uh, just thought I'd throw that up there. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about cocaine. And when I, when I say etc., I'm also here talking about other stimulants. We can we can put method we can put amphetamine in here, we can put methamphetamine in here. You can also put ecstasy in here. Uh, ecstasy is a weird drug. 
because it's very similar to what basically is a stimulant, but it also causes hallucinations. So it sometimes gets put classified as hallucinogenic. <coughs> so you can get transmitter leakage. In fact, methamphetamine, amphetamine, um, epinephrine, not epinephrine, what do I say? Uh, ephedrine, uh, pseudoephedrine, methylphenidrate. Almost everything does this. Cocaine doesn't do this part. It doesn't have uh, transmitter leakage. Uh, you get, that's all the catecholamines and serotonin just leak. <laughs> like they don't even have, you don't need stimulation, you just come out of neurons. Uh, there's also an increase in the amount released. Uh, ecstasy does this with serotonin. Ecstasy is a serotonin reuptake, uh, sorry, uh, serotonin agonist. Uh, cocaine blocks reuptake of dopamine. It basically is a selective dopamine reuptake inhibitor. That's all cocaine does. It doesn't do all the other stuff. It just does. But it basically means there's more, more dopamine in your reward system. So things feel better than they did before. You, everything is more reinforcing, and you're more excited because in, you get epinephrine release to the peripheral nervous system. So people feel great when they take cocaine. There's a great moment in Mad Men. Of course there is. There's always a Mad Men reference. Uh, let's see. Would that be season seven, episode 14, person to person? Yes, it would be. Uh, and in that episode, right at the end, uh, Joan tries cocaine for the first time in 1970. She says, ooh, I feel like someone just gave me some very good news. And that's how you get Yep. Uh, two things. Yep. Uh, the CA at the top there, that's calcium? It's catechoelmine. Yes. Uh, Dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Okay. Uh, also, oh, no, 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 go ahead. Uh, so you said Coke doesn't do the transmitter leak? It just does this. Okay, just on this yeah. side. This is, most of these do all these things, but I can tell you generally this happens, but it doesn't happen with cocaine or ecstasy. So anything that has amphetamine in its name does this. It also doesn't do the increase in the mouth release? No, it doesn't. Okay. Yes, sir. So, um, so does PNS stand for peripheral nervous Yeah, in that case, that's exactly what I mean. So in the peripheral nervous system, uh, epinephrine, I keep wanting to say ecstasy because it's E. Uh, epinephrine is released. Um, so that's, you get excited. This is why one of the reasons cocaine is a uh, banned drug in athletic competitions is because you'll actually perform a little bit better with a small amount of cocaine in you. Uh, you take a lot of cocaine and you'll perform more poorly in almost any of them. But the right amount of the stimulant, you actually will perform better. You know, uh, but it wouldn't be enough to get high. But there were, I mean, there have been cases of baseball players. I can think of one, Tim Raines, who played for Montreal Expos, and he, mid-80s had a cocaine problem, and he actually went into substance abuse thing by the league and all this stuff, but he had cocaine in his pocket while he was playing. He started sliding head first instead of feet first because his cocaine was in his back pocket of his baseball pants. And he'd do a little cocaine between innings, and he'd hit the 278 that year to slow 90 basis. Like, I mean, Tim Raines is in the Hall of Fame for a reason, and it's not because he could play really well when high, it's because he was an incredible baseball player. But the point is, with the right amount of cocaine, you can actually function. This is not me encouraging you to take cocaine. 
What I'm telling you is that what I'm saying is that people that have drug problems don't, aren't always wasted. Sometimes they're just cruising through the day and you wouldn't really know unless you actually knew them pretty well. Now you're all looking at me thinking he's full of cocaine, isn't he? <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not. There's certain things I won't touch and cocaine's one of them, actually. I had some, um, I had some friends in grad school. They weren't in grad school. I, when I was in grad school, who did, who, who certainly, the people I lived with did a lot of cocaine. I've seen people take cocaine. And one of my roommates said, would you do it if you smoked it? What if we smoked it? I said, no, I don't want it at all. I don't want cocaine. Here, so that's cocaine. Speaking of stimulants, caffeine is one that most of us ingest. Who here doesn't ingest caffeine? I mean, ever. Not ever, like, it's a lifestyle thing. I don't mean like you've never in your life, but who here doesn't ever take caffeine? No, okay, good. No chocolate? Chocolate's got caffeine in it. Yeah, so you put your hand down. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Chocolate though? Yeah. Coffee. I coffee this morning. So basically all of us, this is the most, in North America, the most used psychoactive drug. About 85% of adult North Americans are dependent on caffeine. It's about 180 million people. <laughs> it shouldn't also be something that scares you. Caffeine dependence is nothing to be too concerned about. It's just that when you wake up in the morning, you might feel like, like shit until you take a cup, a cup of coffee, take a sip of coffee. You might feel a little irritated. You might feel even a little, little stuffed up, a little congested. Almost flu-like symptoms, sore joints, the whole thing. Then you have some coffee, and it's like, oh, good, I'm gone. That's fine. I'm it. I'll be okay. Might have a headache. Okay. I don't get caffeine headaches, but I, I certainly have the, I'm stuffed up a little bit when I wake up in the morning. And I literally, when I, while I'm emptying the dishwasher from last night and starting the coffee maker, when I smell the coffee, it's like, oh, good, there. I feel better. And that's just condition. It's pretty great. So caffeine, like alcohol, we're not entirely sure how this works. What? Yeah, we don't. The legal ones we know a lot less about, which is disturbing as hell to me. Because <laughs> mm. I ingest caffeine right now. So, Atmazine is a good guess. It probably, when we know it affects Atmazine. And Atmazine is a neuromodulator, it inhibits firing. And caffeine inhibits the inhibition. And high doses can even block a benzodiazepine receptor. So that, in fact, if you take uh, an overdose of diazepam, one of the first things they'll, if, if they know that, they go, one of the first things they'll do is they'll give you an injection of like a thousand milligrams of caffeine, which is still 10 cups of coffee. Uh, it maybe doesn't feel great to have 10 cups of coffee at once, but it feels way better than dying from Valium. Um, for this reason, by the way, you'll hear a lot of people say, Coffee doesn't really, caffeine doesn't really wake you up. It just makes you not tired, which is what waking up is. Way to go, a person who doesn't understand anything. What do you think it would do? What is it supposed to do to make you more awake? How is it supposed to do it chemically? Oh, it's not really more alert. Oh, shut up. God, I hate people. Maybe I should have some coffee. <laughs> That's better. All right. So, the thing about caffeine, by the way, as I said, is that 
Uh, most of us suggest that uh, it's something that adult humans have no problem. In fact, as I mentioned the other day, we're caffeine metabolizing machines in a lot of respects. Uh, the thing about it, 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 it we're pretty, you know, the half-life of caffeine in an adult human is somewhere between 30 minutes and maybe three hours for, some, for somebody who's ingesting a lot of caffeine. Um, now, it's also something, it, there's a lot of effects you're not aware of because you probably ingest a lot of caffeine, so your heart rate increases, pupils dilate a little bit, it's a stimulant. So, because of those things, and we're all used to them, those of us who say drink coffee every day or coke or whatever, uh, but if you're not used to it, that can be an incredibly unpleasant experience, right? So like if I just said to you, I didn't say anything, and suddenly you're, you felt your heart beating faster, and you're not used to that because you're not used to ingesting caffeine, you might think, you have your pain, maybe you have to, well, I'm having a heart attack. You're not. But I, I've seen someone ingest caffeine that doesn't ingest caffeine. An old friend of mine, Bianca, and she had a Coke that, what, that she thought was caffeine-free, and it wasn't, and she was not in a good place. Like, she, like for about 20 minutes, but she was like, and I, she said, I know what it is, I know what it is. She'd taken a course like this from me. And it's like, oh no, I'm, I took caffeine, it's gonna be awful. And it was unpleasant for her, it went away. Uh, it's hard to overdose on caffeine. It's not impossible, but it's incredibly hard. You'd have to drink the equivalent of 80 cups of coffee at once. The, the lethal dose is about, from the average person, works out to about 8,000 milligrams, so about eight grams of caffeine. You can't ingest that much. You could with a powder. A coffee. Now, the fact that it's, it's funny, caffeine is so pervasive in society generally, not just in this part of the world, all over the place, that unlike, say, cocaine, caffeine is a controlled substance for athletic competitions. It's not a banned substance like cocaine. And this is because they don't want to take away people's right to have coffee in the morning. But most, you know, high-performance athletes are doing, they're taking a pill. And it's, you know, eight or nine hundred milligrams. It's like eight or nine cups of coffee at once. I mean, but the point is that there's very little to be worried about about coffee about caffeine in general. Caffeine's pretty safe. For an adult, don't give it to children so much. You know, on Easter, when you see the little kids running around and you think, oh, look what <laughs> sugar's doing to them. No, that's the caffeine and the chocolate. <laughs> that's what's doing that. That's not sugar. And the excitement of, oh, yay, my friends are here, and I'm going to pretend a bunny gives things out. Did anybody really ever believe the Easter bunny existed? Like, we all believed in Santa, even though at some point you went, this is ridiculous. But there's presents, so I'm not going to say anything. But no one believes the bunny, right? Like, I never believed the bunny. I went, I played along. I played along. Did you play the word? Yeah, okay. Okay. See, I mean, I could be, I'm just, this, I, I could be thinking back so far with those colored glasses, etc. It was a long time ago. I remember when I figured out there was no Santa. Because I, I said, I, one of my teeth came out, and then I, I, uh, I didn't get my quarter. It's probably a nickel. <laughs> it was me. And I, I said to my dad, I was watching my dad get dressed in the morning. Like I used to be in the and I said that I didn't get it. And I said, the tooth fairy must have forgotten that he just 
from the court. Or take on that territory. And then I said, so there's no, I was fine. I said, so there's no tooth fairy going. He said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So you and mom, I get it. This is probably your Easter buddy, right? He said, no. Obviously, it's your mother and I buy chocolates. Mostly your mother, I don't really get involved in that. Remember, it's 1968, so no, he wouldn't know. No, 1970. Then I said, wait, there's no Santa Claus, is there? And my dad just yelled, Leslie! Because my, my mom will take care of that. And that's when my mom said, did your mom say this? It's the spirit of Christmas. Santa Claus is the spirit of Christmas. Which I immediately said, so there's no Santa Claus, is what she said. And then she said, you better not kill your little brother. And I didn't, and I kept it for my brother till he was like nine. I'm pretty convinced that he figured it out when he was about six. But again, you play along because the presents are better. At least that's the thinking when you're a kid. Right. Speaking of my childhood, my dad smoked a lot. Let's talk about nicotine. I used to smoke. Smoking's bad for you. Yep. But, 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 it makes you look cool grown up. All right, uh, where are their nicotine receptors? Oh, look, <laughs> there, there, and there. The cortex is one that's your higher order thinking, and in fact, those of us who do smoke or have smoked can tell you that it's a way to focus yourself, is have a cigarette, like it really does. Uh, but also, it feels amazing. Hey, look, the three parts of your, of your reward system. That's the reward system, that's why you feel good when you smoke. That's why, to quote my father, I don't care what anybody says, cigarettes taste effing good. They don't taste good, but they, they feel good when, you, when you're a smoker. They feel great. The weird thing is, like, just how powerful this is. How powerful is this reinforcement effect? No one enjoys their first cigarette. No one has a cigarette and goes, boy, did I ever like coffee and almost puking and turning green? That was great. Can I have another one? But you know what? You say, Dad, can I have another one? Because there's this feeling you get of, oh boy, this feels really because of these. It's operating your reward system. It's difficult to quit smoking because of the withdrawal symptoms, but also because when you have the withdrawal symptoms, you can get rid of them. And the other thing is, you can feel good anytime you want. So you see It's really powerful. It's really, and you, you'll, you'll, you'll structure your day around cigarettes. When can I go get smoked? I was literally thinking that this morning, because if I still smoked, part of this today would have been this. Okay, so I'll go, I'll go home, I'll have to go to the store. I'll stop at the store, God, it's raining. Like, that would be the whole thing. But you know what, if it was raining like this, I'd be like, well, I, can, I, uh, yeah, I, I, need, I need exercise. No, I need to get smoked. Yep. Uh, as part of like, being uh, involved with the basal ganglia, are there separate effects on decision making? I haven't seen anything like that. It's a good question. I've seen it. What is that, John? Yep. Um, nicotine receptors, is it like natural in the brain nicotine? And it's like that receptor specific for nicotine, or is it just different receptor? It's a receptor that binds with nicotine. Yeah. So we make something similar to that, yes. And John, you had a question. Yeah, so what does cortex do with the... Uh, oh, what do the nicotine receptors, receptors do in your cortex? Well, yeah. think of what cortex does. So cortex does, that's just the lumpy bits, all the sort of higher order cognition, all the analysis, all the thinking. Um, yeah. and I, so there are effects of nicotine on things like 
attention uh, on your, if, again, these are in smokers, by the way. So this is not a, a solution when you think, oh, I know how I'll solve problems better. I'll start smoking. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But if you are a smoker, you solve problems better when you smoke. When I say solve problems, I mean things like, oh, we're going through a maze, that kind of thing. Um, it's also true, by the way, going through a maze with rats if you give them, coke, uh, give them nicotine. Uh, it's hardest part of that is getting the little cigarettes for them. Obviously, they're being injected. Um, but it affects how you think. It, it, it clears, it focuses you more than anything. But again, that's if you already are a nicotine user. If you're not one, all it's going to make you, it's, it's unpleasant. Nicotine's unpleasant, unless you are somebody who already smokes, for example. And the thing is, you don't get those effects from things like the patch or the gum. You get those from smoking. The feel-good part hitting very quickly comes from smoking. You don't feel really great with those patches. But they get rid of the, the, the withdrawal symptoms. So there are peripheral nervous system effects. There's, there are tremors. One of the ways you can tell if someone smokes, you have to put their hand in. They hold their hand steady. Hey, look, I can. Longest time. Uh, it's like a Hitler salute. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Good point. No, seriously, that's a strong point. Someone takes a picture of that. Someone takes a picture of that, and I'm in real trouble. So your hand, my hand doesn't do that now. It just does this. And my son accused me of being a Nazi. Um, it's a good point, though, because if someone took a picture of that, I could probably get in trouble. Which I could immediately explain. But I didn't take it. No, thank you. Also, it's being recorded, so everybody knows what's happening. Um, Such so tremors. Inhibition. There's this inhibition of. Now I'm worried about every gesture I make. Is that some kind of totalitarian salute somewhere? You don't usually get a bunch of people standing together, thousands in an arena doing this stuff. Uh, so you get inhibition, which seems odd, but it's disinhibition because it inhibits inhibition. Uh, your blood vessels constrict. Another way you can tell is when you shake a, a smoker's hand, their hands are cold. Because their blood vessels are constricted. So you can, you can usually tell. This is one of the, it's funny, remember Sherlock? Show Sherlock pretty good. Uh, one of the ways he detected that someone was a smoker is you can see the nicotine stains in their fingers, and you can see their hand was shaking, and you can see he shook their hands with them, and it's cold. Yeah, is this slide just for nicotine or yeah. all Yeah, no, nicotine. Yeah. Hmm. So the central nervous system effects, obviously, as well. Uh, the reward system, release of norepinephrine, epinephrine, serotonin, it's a stimulant. It messes with your sleep. They're finally, I think, expensive enough now that it's going to stop people from smoking because they're, I think, how much are cigarettes then? Like they're over 20 bucks a pack now, right? Which is good because when I started, they were $2 a pack. And I realize there's been inflation over the years. It hasn't been that much. stimulant, why do people smoke to calm there? If, again, anybody here who smokes or has been a smoker will tell you that people smoke to relax. Yet, it's a stimulant, which seems 
ass backwards, right? But, so this, this thing's actually got a name. It's called Nesbitt's Paradox. Somebody named Nesbitt saw something we all saw and said, I'm going to put my name on that. Now we all call it Nesbitt's Paradox. So from now on, when it's raining and it's sunny out, you know, a sun shower, that's a paradox. We're going to call that Broadbeck's Paradox. I'm going to go to play something. So, why is this? Because it's a stimulant. Why do people smoke to relax? And you do. You're anxious, you have a cigarette, it calms you down. Like it really does. Does anybody here smoke? No. It's so nice to see that people don't. I know somebody. So you know, right? If you're nervous, you're worked up, it's like a cigarette will calm you right down. It does, right? And it shouldn't, because it's a stimulant. It's like you would never go, yeah, a bump of cocaine would just totally calm me down. That's the kind of thing people say. Just a little bit of meth, and I'll feel smooth everything right out. No one says that. But people are like, well, nobody says, I'll have a bunch of coffee to calm down. But with a cigarette, they're like, yeah, I don't smoke. I'm feeling really kind of wound up. And everybody accepts it. Because it's true. It really does nothing. Why? Is it the physical act of smoking? So is it the fact that doing something else distracts you? One second. It distracts you from what you're being upset about. Uh, that's probably true. Is it to get rid of withdrawal symptoms? This is probably partially true. Withdrawal symptoms from cigarettes are really unpleasant. Uh, they can last, and I kid you not, longest, I've seen uh, 15 years reported in the literature. Still getting withdrawal symptoms. I've had a craving for a cigarette. What, six months? But it still happens. It still happens. Uh, I remember even six months after I quit, one time my, my wife had bought a, it wasn't six months, maybe a couple months, my wife had bought us a new barbecue and I was putting it together, which is always easy, especially when you're blind. And, uh, and the parts were made, I think, in a North Korean prison. And I'm putting this thing, I'm putting this thing together. And I saw it. And I was calm. I wasn't going to get worked up. And I had a temper, as you can probably tell you. But, please don't. But uh, <laughs> I, I got up. And she said, oh, you're not done. Are you really taking a break? I said, oh, no, I'm going to the store to buy cigarettes. <laughs> and she said, no, you're not. I said, well, you're going to literally have to stop. And as I walked up, and she said, stop. And of course, I went, yeah, OK. Because <laughs> that works. But um, it still happens. Uh, the last time, yeah, it was, I guess, you know what? It was actually last Monday when it was cold out, and I breathed in really cold air. Uh, because it's like, oh, this reminds me of standing outside and smoking. So. You get rid of the withdrawal symptoms. There's also nicotine receptors in the GABA system. So nicotine actually, it'll make all those other things, the stimulant properties, but also it causes the most, um, it causes something that slows you down to, be, to work better. So it actually does calm you down. And I found that out by going to the wrong talk at a conference once. Went with a friend of mine, and we were gonna go to this talk, and the guy started talking, and he said, so I'm gonna talk about nicotine receptors I've discovered in the GABA system, and my friend's like, we should go. I said, no, we're staying, I wanna hear this. So sometimes going to the wrong talk makes sense. Okay, let's talk about, let's have, let's talk about uh, opening the doors of perception, man. Yeah. So LSD, 
and other serotonin-like drugs. LSD, in a lot of respects, is like serotonin. It basically is, uh, same with magic mushrooms. They've got 120 minute, 110, 120 minute half-life, on average, could be up to like three, four. 110 minute half-life though, that's a pretty long stretch of time. Also, you take LSD in micrograms, like the doses are really small. Uh, this was started by, uh, there's a few people who have taught, uh, really got into this. This wasn't illegal. These drugs weren't illegal until the mid-1960s because they didn't exist, really. Like, LSD was discovered by a guy named Hoffman um, in Switzerland, and he ingested I think a quarter of a milligram, which is an incredibly large amount of acid. That's like taking about 50 hits of acid. And he wrote his bike home, which I am imagining was fascinating. This was in 1944 in Geneva. So he's riding along in Switzerland, tripping balls, <laughs> wondering what's happening. Uh, then in the 60s, you get Timothy Leary, who was a professor at Harvard. And I can tell you something. You know how you can get fired from being a tenured professor? Handing out mushrooms to your students. As fun as that sounds, you guys all seem pretty reasonable. I don't think it's a good idea that I would hand out, you know, hallucinogenic drugs to you. Let's all do that on our own time, separately without me being involved. Or not, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you take those drugs after class. After class, don't do it before class. I never take these drugs. <laughs> well, I know that, but yes. please, nobody. No, I don't want people, people, you want to do these things, it's great. And in fact, LSD is pretty safe. LSD is pretty safe. You actually can't really overdose in LSD. You can take so much acid that you're going to do something stupid. You might take so much acid that you jump on top of a police car and try to rip the, the light off of it and spend two days in jail. Was it me? It was a friend of mine. <laughs> My friend John. Uh, uh, spelled differently. Uh, cops love that too. You jump on their cars and attack them. They're really into that. You don't get beaten up in jail at all from that. Um, yeah, they're pretty safe. I mean, but you might do something stupid. But you can't take so much that you can hurt yourself. You probably can, but the amount of acid you have to ingest is so high. This is where the expression tune in, turn in, drop out. Uh, Morning Glory seeds. So morning, morning Glory is kind of um, plant. You can buy the seeds. You can buy them at Canadian Tire. Don't. Just grow flowers. Weed's legal. Just go get some weed. Oh, harmine. That's something you don't see anymore. <laughs> There's some 1960s stuff. Uh, toad licking. Ufotnin. There's a kind of toad. Set the clocks. How is it that my clock in my house automatically sets through a satellite that I pay 20 bucks for on Amazon and this one does? Anyway, there are toads in Australia that use these, something like these drugs as a defense. And they're very brightly colored. And those of you who know about behavior know about aposematism. It's basically a, you become very, if you're, you evolve to be very brightly colored and poisonous. And that teaches a lesson to anybody who tries to eat 
things like you. It's like, don't. And it's easy to learn because in these cases, with these, these toes are bright blue. Monarch butterflies are another example. They aren't not going to get you stoned. They're just going to make you sick. Um, this is one of the weird cases where, in fact, the, these Australian toads, the, uh, I guess the, the discovery of this was published, and then after that, people said, oh, wow, people could lick toads in Australia, and then people did that. It didn't start with licking the toads. It started with people finding out you could lick toads. And by the way, in Australia, people aren't doing this, really, because it's the most urbanized country in the world. You can either go into the outback, look for some toads. Well, I'm here to look at the satellites. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Mad Max, nothing. Uh, it's the most urbanized country in the world. It's by Israel, you'll find you might selling LSD. But it's used as a defense mechanism uh, by this animal. Uh, there's other drugs that are also hallucinogenic. Basically, these drugs are drugs that, when taken in a less than lethal dose, cause hallucinations. That's the way people usually classify hallucinogenic uh, drugs. Uh, that MDMA, that's ecstasy. Uh, there's STP, mescaline, nutmeg, <laughs> nutmeg? Yeah, nutmeg. The amount you have to ingest is so high that it would, it would make you ill before you. But if you took a lot of nut, it'll cost you a great deal of money. So like handfuls of nutmeg, you'll get hot. Like you'll see things. Also, you'll be sick and you'll be puking. Just don't just, again, go buy some weed. Go get a bottle of rum. What's that? Isn't that a delirium? Like taking uh, like a or something? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it will do that, yeah. Yeah, no, no, Yeah, it's not good. Mescaline's hilarious because people think that the, a lot of things. Mescaline is just a drug. Uh, it'll cause hallucinations. The other thing about mescaline is it's got nothing to do with worms and tequila. Actually, tequila doesn't have worms in it. Mescal has worms in it. Also, because it says mescal doesn't mean it's the same thing. Because if you think that's true, then you should also think when it says mescaline, you know, it's kind of lettuce, that's also got it. No, anyway, you can get mescaline, you can get high, see things. It's a lot more a visual, a lot of these hallucinations here are visual rather than say auditory. Uh, Mandrake. Deadly nightshade. I, as a rule, try to avoid all products who have the name deadly in them. <laughs> I don't like that, you know, it's like, this will kill, like it's, uh, this is the thing, it's like cigarettes, you look at the package and it says, these will kill you with smooth taste. Um, PCP, which is called angel dust, PCP, in the 70s people, there's a whole moral panic about PCP. It makes you super strong, does it? It makes you do stupid things. So people will try to do things that would probably hurt themselves, but they look, oh, he's got super strength. No, it doesn't. Special case of ketamine. All right. And then my favorite is cannabis. There's a couple of posters from movies. Uh, this is a classic Reefer Madness. It's available on archive.org. You can go watch it. It's hilarious and funny. It's because it's serious. They really are serious about oh, the, 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 the scourge of marijuana. Marijuana with an H, which is great. 
if you watch, it takes about an hour, it's an hour long movie. It's funny because the beginning has a guy from the Department of Education talking about, who's long dead, well they're all dead, it's from 1937. The best part is this guy here. He's the, he's the dealer, and he literally looks like a dealer in his suit. And the, the joints they have, are they look just like regular cigarettes. So I don't know who's rolling these, but it's very it's impressive because I, I, I still can't roll a joint properly. So the best part, I, I want to tell you how it ends. I'm going to spoil it. Because the ending is so funny. I, even if you just watch the end. But there's a part where he's really high. Well, he's supposed to be high. I've never seen anybody act like this. And she's playing the piano. And he keeps saying, play faster. Play faster. Play faster. Like he's acting like, I don't know what drug he's on, but it isn't. It isn't THC. Uh, this is great too. What do we have here? Drug crazed abandoned. And I guess obviously not sleeping well. Looks like she's got some dark circles under her eyes. This is my favorite. This one has the word misery in a hypodermic needle. I don't know about you, but when I want to ingest cannabis of any sort, I go right to a hypodermic. I don't smoke. I don't use the oil. No gummies. I just sort of right in my arm. <laughs> Who does that? Anyway. Hilarious. So how was, how were cannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors discovered? Uh, there was a group, this was in, I guess, geez, I think 83, quite a while ago. This was just after opiate receptors were discovered. And one group, one lab figured out, what they did is they were looking at where this cannabinoid, where, uh, where the binding sites were in a rat brain. And a group in another lab at the National Institutes of Mental Health in the States uh, were looking, where they looked at gene expression and where this certain gene made certain receptors uh, exist and it was in the same place. The maps overlapped, which I just think is cool. Um, Science is a lot more about people talking to each other and interacting with each other than I think most people think. So that's just, that's just a neat thing. By the way, when someone asks a question like this, that's when they're really stoned. You can tell them right away from me, stop asking stupid questions. You know, you think you're, you're, what you're saying is really deep when you're high? It's not. Record yourself stoned sometime. You're not deep, you're just, you're an idiot. And we, you all are, me too. Like it's not just, I'm not saying bad things about you, I'm saying humans have trouble thinking straight when they're stoned, that's part of the fun. I don't know why they're coming up from the side. Where are the receptors for THC? Uh, cortex, hippocampus, cerebellum. Hey look, everywhere. Spinal cord? Wild. Brainstem, hypothalamus. Let's go through some of these and, and think about the effects of THC because we all, I think, know them now. It's not like you have to pretend you've never seen drugs. Cortex, higher order cognition. Well, yes, it messes with your higher order cognition when you're on. Hippocampus. Um, 
there are memory effects such that when you learn things hard, you forget them later. Cerebellum, uh, which is important in balance and fine movement. And again, I think I told you the story about the first time it became legal and I, I smoked a very half of an extremely powerful joint. And I was walking like this because I felt like I had to or I'd fall over, which is really weird, but I couldn't bounce. Basal ganglia, reward system. Spinal cord, what? Wait, what? Uh, actually, it turns out that um, Pain. In fact, I take CBD, which is a different cannabinoid, um, just it for my leg. I broke my leg four years ago, and if I don't take it, it hurts. Not badly, but it's just a dull pain that I get. Hypothalamus. Oh, brainstem, it affects your sleep. Hypothalamus. Gee, what are a couple of things that happen when you're high that you think would be mediated by hypothalamus? Couple of side effects. Snackishness. Yeah, get the munchies. Also, you get thirsty. Both of those things are controlled in hypothalamus. So you get thirsty and you get hungry. Or you get the drives, as people might say. That's what we used to call it. Or Goonie Mouth. That was just an expression that me and my friends came up with because we saw the movie The Goonies and we smoked a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend whose name I will, that doesn't matter, he's retired. My friend Donnie, um, he, a lot of groups, 1985, summer of, kind of hot. So, we had some goodies in Donnie, drinking Coke, he wanted Coke because he said, he was because his nose was so bad. And he got paranoid because he was going to get paranoid. He got paranoid about it. Everybody can hear me. Like, yes, everybody can hear you right now. <laughs> so we, from then on, we called it Goody Mouth, and we stopped letting Donnie pick the movies. Donnie and I also once ate a whole chicken in 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and it just sounds like a movie, and it's not from a, from a movie from the 80s, but it sounds like it. We went back to our friend Ian's house, and we were high, and then, because we got high on the way home, from the bar we were at. Don't act like that. And so we got home, or not home, but to Ian's place, and Ian literally so we saw this chicken as we walked in. And he's like, uh oh, what's that? And Ian's like, don't do that. My mom cooked that for the week to make sandwiches and stuff, lunches. But it's a, it's a whole glistening roasted chicken sitting right there. So Ian literally said, no, don't touch that. He goes off, he goes, I gotta go pee. He comes back about 90 seconds later and we've eaten it. <laughs> now two guys were about maybe five, 20 could eat a chicken in 90 seconds. It isn't pretty. <laughs> when Ian came back, he looked at us and he said, you guys ate that chicken. Because we were covered in chicken fat, holding chicken bones, and there was a carcass there. He said, we're like, no. <laughs> and then what we did is we went into the basement and we found in the freezer, we found a chicken, we defrosted it and roasted it. Because <laughs> it's like, you gotta make up for it. Uh, and that was, and the funny thing was, his parents were home the whole time. And they knew what we were doing, they were pretty cool people and didn't care. We were adults, 20 years old. Anyway, my, my parents walked in on me smoking weed with a bunch of friends when I was 21, and my mom apologized. She said, I'm sorry we came home so early. I said, well, I'm sorry I was watching Back to the Future and getting high with my friends in the living room. 
She said, well, what am I gonna say? Your father was doing it at the cottage. I went, oh, that's a thing I didn't know. <laughs> also, your spleen. There are, with me, your spleen. What's your spleen do? Somebody's gotta know. Doesn't anybody know what your spleen does? There's gotta be some people, wait, wait. Somebody look it up, what's your spleen do? What's the function of a human spleen? Yeah, it fights infection, and there's antibacterial effects of this drug. So, um, so, of, of these drugs. so yeah. what does the uh, spleen and hypothalamus do? Oh, hypothalamus is what, that's when you end up hungry or thirsty. Yeah. Uh, spleen, this is going to be uh, an antibacterial yeah. effect. Yeah. So some conclusions about drugs. Uh, oh, sorry. Sorry, THC makes uh, the spleen less effective? Th I'm sorry, what did you say? Does it make it less effective, this thing? No, more. more. It's, it's, it's actually, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's got antibacterial effects. Now, I will also tell you that people who run weed stores try to tell you that weed will cure all diseases. And people who are real potheads will tell you that too. You know, it's totally good for you. It's not good for you. It's just not that horribly bad for you like alcohol. But you'll hear people, no, but I'm saying, I've been in stores where they say, you know, I don't know if you've read the most recent research, but I'm sort of thinking, do I tell them what I do? Uh, but you know, it turns out that THC actually makes people drive better or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> don't drive on any drug, please. Because, and I don't care about you, I don't want to get hit by a car. You do whatever you want. Just stay away from me and my family. <laughs> That's sort of my view. Other questions about before we move on to talk about some conclusions? Uh, yes, Jamie. Uh, sorry, what are like, the differences between THC and cannabis? Uh, THC is an active ingredient. It's one of the um, psychoactive ingredients in cannabis. There's about 200 of them. The one that gets you high is Delta 9 THC. Which is uh, write this properly. So delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol or THC. Yep. I'm pretty sure when you cannabis too, it creates a second type. Yes, uh, delta. Yes, there's a lot of a lot of the metabolites are psychoactive. Um, the key, the, the big one is delta nine. There's also delta eight THC, which is psychoactive. Uh, there's also things like CBD. Now, the thing what, what CBD does is it has a it has a calming effect. Mostly, those of us who have taken CBD or do know what that's like. So it's a calming thing. Uh, it also uh, has the best way to describe it is it smooths out what THC does. THC can be very intense if you're not used to it. Like if it's something you don't know, because, and that's because most of us, most of us, our experience with a psychoactive drug is alcohol. We expect THC to be like alcohol. And it's got some similarities, it's not the same. So one of the things, I was talking with my brother-in-law over the weekend, over the, not the weekend, during the week, we were down in London, and he and I were both talking about how when something happens that you know is a drug effect, you go, oh, that'll be gone in 10 minutes. So you know, sometimes there's a side effect of a little bit of paranoia when you're high. Whenever I get that, I think, oh, there's that. Well, that'll be gone soon. 
I know that will be gone sooner. I know that is because of what's happening with my brain chemistry, because of the drug I ingested. That's not because anything really is bad. But I will double check the sump pump nine times, just to be sure, because it'll make me feel good. But the basement isn't leaking. He said, hopefully, because maybe it's very rainy today. Our basement's never leaked. I don't know why I said that. So, and so CBD kind of smooths all that out. So when I do it recreationally, I just take pure THC. I don't take any CBD, but I know what I'm doing kind of thing. I'm, I wouldn't have done that five years ago. Or if, or if I did, I'd be completely a mess. Yeah. Like all drugs, like you get experience, you know what to expect. It's when you don't know what to expect, and it's a problem. So drugs are fun. That's why we take them. We take psychoactive drugs because they feel good. And the nice thing is that conditioning explanation, the reinforcement-based model of drug-taking behavior, which is that drugs, we take drugs because they reinforce taking them, right? So we, we, we do drug-taking behavior, drink, drink alcohol, take a call, cigarette, whatever, and then the immediate thing is reinforcement, so we keep doing it. It's an incredible, incredibly good explanation. It also explains things like sociological effects, like how lower socioeconomic status people have more drug problems. Uh, one of the biggest things about this is, like, the truth of this really bothers some people. Like, which I find strange, but I've had pushback from people before. Uh, not that often, but it happens. But when, you, when you're told things like, it's not evil to do this, it's not wrong. Some of the things, these things are really legal, but it's not wrong, it just is. And also, what's the safest thing to be? Probably, the safest thing probably would be to legalize everything and regulate the hell out of it. You know, that works. It's Portugal. It's a great example. Where it's worked decently. Uh, Switzerland as well. Pretty much decriminalized everything. Yeah. And if we do that, there's less chance of us having, uh, I think, a problem society. Yes, please. When you what? When you green out. I don't know what that means. Like when you smoke so much weed that yeah. you like, you know, like, you're so incredibly high that you can't think straight? Yeah, like you're throwing a... Oh, that! Yeah. Yeah, that's... that's like what happens? What happens? Yeah, like is there anything... I don't know the answer to that, actually. Uh, I, will, I do know that when you take, you can take so much that you'll get sick. Yeah. I've seen it happen. It's never happened to me because I'm, I know exactly the dose to take and like I've got very damn good science. But uh, yeah, I have a friend who ate uh, two cookies once. Yeah. And he spent the evening in the bathroom throwing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've I know of other people that's happened to too. It's it's too much, you know, but I don't actually know kind of biologically what's happening. So good question. Well, let me find out. Good job. So um when drinking tequila or uh, drugs or vodka <laughs> Do you get uh, We're all once and, and then throw it, it to the uh, bathroom? Me? Well, I have. But yeah, people, that's, that's the thing. A lot of times what these things will lead to is an unpleasant reaction, which is something like uh, being sick or some such. Yeah. Basically, what I'm saying is don't mix your science and your morality. That's, that's an important thing. You can think thinking drugs is wrong. Go, go nuts on that, but realize that if we have receptors for something, it probably means we make our own. 
right, so we spent three days on drugs, and we'll, <laughs> and we'll spend now seven minutes on hormones. Uh, hormones are basically like neurotransmitters. They work with receptors. It's very similar. The difference is they're in your, they're secreted by glands, and they're in your bloodstream. That's really, and in fact, a lot of neurotransmitters can act as hormones in the bloodstream. We, can, we basically have three kinds of hormones, very generally homeostatic ones. Those just keep us steady. So hunger, thirst, etc. Reproductive ones and stress hormones. You probably guessed that on the next test, there'll be a lot more material about the drugs part than the hormones part because I'm mostly skipping the hormones part because it pours the shit out of me. So, and because I'm the professor, I get to make those decisions. Yeah. Most of us don't say those things out loud, I just do. Uh, so the hypothalamus sends up releasing factors uh, to the pituitary, the pituitary then tells various glands to make hormones. So hormones in our cells, through receptors, it's, it's really, and basically cause they turn genes on and off, they cause proteins to be expressed, etc. So, really, that's, I'm not gonna get too into that, but that's roughly what's going on with your hormones. Um, good, perfect timing. So, let's talk first off about sex hormones, the big ones here, testosterone and estrogen, obviously. Testosterone seems to contribute to the ma to male spatial superiority on tests. These on tests of spatial reasoning, they're real effects. They're very small effects, but they're they're real. Uh, they, they don't affect anybody's health. Okay, so we could do something like a good spatial test is uh, mirror tracing, not mirror tracing, um, mental rotation. Oops. So just go back one so I get there. We go. See, that's not, okay, fine, fine, have it your way. So one of the tests you can use is something called mental rotation. So I show you this and say, is that a letter? Yes, it is on the state's form. I show you that. Is that a letter? And yes, it's the letter R. And then I show you this, and you say, no, that's not a letter because it's an R package. The way we solve this is what we end up doing is we rotate the letter until it's straight up and down, and then we make a decision. And we know, know that because the amount of time it takes you to say, to respond that it's a letter or not, uh, is proportional to the number of degrees that you have rotated the letter. So we mentally rotate. And men are a little bit better at this than women. But you know what? No one gets them wrong. It's not like and these differences, while they're consistent, are small enough that they don't matter. But we can take them and guys in the eh, Probably not quite enough guys in here. We need another six or seven. And then uh, we could do this, and it would work, and the women would show score a little bit lower than the men. But no one in time, but no one, or a little bit higher than men because time you want, but no one would make mistakes. Or if you did, you'd make one, and you'd look and go, oh, sorry, that's a mistake. So it's not like, when I talk about male superiority in spatial tests or female superiority on verbal tests, I'm not saying that men shouldn't 
I don't know, be writers and women shouldn't be what something space you're learning. Fighter pilots, um, both can do those things. Point is, progesterone, uh, at low levels, women do better on spatial tasks. Higher levels, uh, not so good, but, the, but their verbal superiority shows up. So again, if we had a test where we were asking people, is this a noun or an adjective, a verb or an adverb, we all would get them right most of the time, but the women would be faster than the men. hormones, what happens is that the brain recognizes some kind of stressor in the environment. Uh, and then epinephrine is released. It turns on your sympathetic nervous system. Cortisol kind of shuts it down. And cortisol levels are controlled by the hippocampus, which is interesting because it does something else it does other than memory stuff. But Cortisol levels are controlled by, yeah, are, sorry, are controlled, but too much cortisol damages hippocampus. So people who are constantly going through fight or flight responses, end up getting damaged to hippocampus and have memory problems. Now, I want you to understand that the amount of stress you'd have to be under to have memory problems is from things like combat, natural disasters. It's not from, I have two tests and a paper due. You're damaging my hippocampus. Someone said that. And then I said, I'd like you to read some stuff that I don't know that you're all understand it because some of the I, didn't, I, I thought that part. Point is, uh, there's no, you're not under, most of you, I hope, at least aren't under enough stress to damage your brain, okay? Uh, soldiers, uh, please. Would that maybe be considerable, like panic disorder? Oh, sure. Um, but, yeah, if somebody had some kind of disorder, yeah, that's certainly possible. But that's not what I'm talking about here. This, this person didn't have a panic disorder. No, I just mean more like, could a, could a disorder like that sort of be comparable to someone uh, it's different. I think it's different. I mean, I'm not a clinician, so I'm just talking out of my ass here. So, but I think it's qualitatively different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. PTSD is serious stuff. I mean, that's yeah. Not that panic disorder or something like that's not serious. It's just that. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but it's funny. I should. I'm gonna ask Taryn about that. She's a clinician, she, and, it, and her guesses are gonna be better than mine because she's a clinician. Um, so the point is that hippocampus is doing this monitoring, but too much stress can actually, too much release of stress hormones can actually damage hippocampus, which is kind of insidious in its own way. Yeah, Joe. So, so what does, uh, how much, how much do you get in HP? How much is too much? Yeah. I don't know. And it's gonna be different for every person. And how many of them, cortical? How many of the cortisol levels could Oh, how, how, how much cortisol? Yeah. I don't know. It's going to be different for every person. Yes? Is it like displayed in like MRI? You can quite literally see you can see the You can see the damage in the images. Yeah. 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 yeah, please. Is it only the cortisol that could damage it or all stress hormones? 
See, I want to say only the cortisol because that's all I've, I know, but it may be possible there's something else too, so I don't, I'm not going to go make a definitive statement there. All right. Uh, good. Hey, look at that. 11.15, we finished. Uh, we spent, as I said, three days on drugs and seven minutes on hormones. Uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. And if you haven't picked up your tests, they're still there. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. Uh, I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, 
I will see you next time.